Hello, Homo sapiens listeners. I'm just jumping on here, did you hear me jump, to tell you that we have exciting news. If you want to listen to Homo sapiens without the ads, now you can. You can subscribe to Homo sapiens plus on Apple Podcasts and all future episodes will be ad free. How do you sign up? Well, go inside your Apple Podcasts app. Go to our Homo Sapiens homepage and the option to subscribe to Homo Sapiens Plus for £1.49 a month is there. There's also BT Dubs, a seven-day free trial available, so you can try before you buy, which is my favourite. I like to do that in the supermarket whenever they've got a little snack being handed out. Anyway, I digress. Hello, part two of uh, our lovely chat with Lily Cole. Activism, environmental stuff... Very interesting chat. Here it is. You said that you came to a new understanding of your relationship with acting. And I wondered if what that was because you you know you obviously started acting a long time ago. I think it's that when I came to it, I came to it very organically in that I was quite like innocent to the industry. And I just really loved acting as a kid from kind of a young age in school. Um, and then when I started modelling... I was sent scripts and so it sort of just happened organically Mm. that I started exploring that space and felt really drawn to it and was really lucky to like immediately get cast in some amazing projects with some amazing directors like Terry Gilliam, Sally Potter and others. And I think because of that, I then sort of went into the industry more and that didn't feel right in some way because it felt like I kept like auditioning for things that didn't actually feel like the right things for me to do. I, but I should be trying to do because that's what you're supposed to do if you're an actor working in the industry. <laughs> um, yes. And after quite a few years feel feeling, and also like, I guess spiritually, I sort of believe in like manifestation or just like the flow of things and like allowing things to sort of flow and not trying to like force things to happen. And it felt like a bit, like I was being a bit too desperate, I guess, <laughs> for want of a better word in trying to like make stuff happen. Mm. And then simultaneously, I started getting more behind the camera. So I started directing short films and, um, and that felt really, really good. And I think as my interest in filmmaking shifted more to like behind the camera and, and I'm still very much sort of like, uh, putting energy into that, like, uh, energy into that side of things, I decided to sort of step back from trying to act, if that makes sense. And just, mm-hmm. And in doing that, weirdly, then got started, you know, like stuff st- was hmm. to get sent that felt resonant. And last year I did a couple of yes. projects that were actually amazing and reminded me why I love acting so much. Um, and that feels like a healthier way to, to approach it. Interesting. Yeah. I'm also so lucky that I don't depend on it financially as a job and I never have. Hmm. Whereas obviously that's very different for actors who it's like they, it pays their bills. So um, I've always approached it a bit more like as an, as an artistic kind of sideline to other things I do. Yeah, I mean, I think that is for one's own ability to live in that heavy rejection world of acting, which is like, you know, I think there's some crazy statistic, like only 4% of actors on the planet are working at any given time. I think it's even less. You know, I think it's like 1% is or it? something even crazier. Really? <laughs> yeah. And then even when you're acting, even when you get the job... You're often not acting a lot of the time. You're like sitting in a trailer or doing your makeup. Yeah. Or, so it's like kind of amazingly like and it's an amazingly like absent job to be doing. <laughs> but amazing when you're doing it. <laughs> but all I know is that now when the right thing comes along, it's awesome. Um, I did a film last year about Hilmar F. Klint, the Swedish artist. And mm. um, 
And it was like ticked every single box of the things I'm interested in. And it gave me permission for a few months to just dive into a whole other world and way of thinking. And, and mm. I think it's that that I love. It's the permission to to be mm-hmm. someone else or to explore a version of myself that does exist, but I don't necessarily operate every day. Um, mm. So when it, when, it, when it sings, it's great. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And, and also, is it like if you went from modeling into more full-time acting you're kind of going from one thing into a very other similar thing which is about you being picked for something by other people I'm talking about the industry side of acting that you were in with the managers and all of that when actually at that same time you were beginning to discover other things that you wanted to do around sustainability and actually having a bit more agency in your own life so maybe that yeah I think the lack of agency was definitely a big I'm a I like to be master of my own ship a bit. And I think there was a lack of agency mm. that was that was the bit that was sort of driving me nuts and maybe why I liked directing so much more. Because mm. I could, if, you know, I didn't like the idea that I was having to wait for permission to be creative. It's like, yes. like, I just want to be creative. I don't need to, like, I don't want to like wait to be told I'm allowed to be creative now. Um, that yes. sort of felt nonsensical. Let me tell you a little bit more about Hilma because I think you're going to like this story. Okay. So do you know anything about it? No, nothing. Okay, you might recognise her work when you see it because it's a sort of like amazing artwork that gets put on Instagram a lot, for example. Um, but she's considered probably the first Western abstract artist. Um, she was working kind of like late, um, like started like late 19th century into early 20th century. Um, Can Ackland. I Google image her while you... Yeah, while yeah, you... please do. Because So Hilma, how do I spell... H-I-L-M-A, Hilma, and then mm-hmm. Af is af and then clint c l i n t okay yeah just um, getting a visual up so she did this oh, wow. incredible and they're all huge these paintings um super colorful super abstract paintings at a time before um kandinsky who's previously been considered probably the first western abstract uh, painter i studied art history uh-huh. in university and her name didn't come up because she wasn't wow. very well known till quite recently um, partially because she didn't publish any of her work in her lifetime and wrote in her will that it wasn't to be published for like several decades later. And so it's only <sighs> recently emerged. Um, and um, the Guggenheim in New York did a big show for her a few years ago. And it sort of caused a bit of a rewriting of art history. Um, wow. And then the plot thickens because it turns out she didn't entirely do her work by herself she was working with a group of four other women and they called themselves the five. Um, Mm. And they met over a course of 10 years every week and they held kind of seances where they were very spiritual and they would try and speak and communicate with spirits and channel ideas, messages. And it was through those seances that they got the message they needed to do drawings. And they started off doing these quite like abstract drawings. And then at some point Hilma was given the message that she needed to do paintings and kind of take that work into the the painting space. Um, She was probably a lesbian and there was probably quite a lot of like queerness in that group. Um, Mm. Some of which we know for sure. And some of which is more speculative and everything they were doing was very, very secret because obviously it was at a time where, you know, women weren't empowered. Queerness wasn't allowed. Women weren't Mm. necessarily like the art they were doing was like super weird and, and radical. And so, yeah, it's just a kind of, 
It's extraordinary. Quite fascinating, yeah, moment in history to to look at when culture was changing so much, to look at a group of, of women that were so kind of ahead of their time in a way. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's so common, isn't it, that like we're told that it's this so-and-so man who started something and then people dig back and they're like no actually there was a woman who did it first but of course that's not how history wrote it history history yes love that i also like the idea that it's not just like the easy thing to do is to say it's not this one man it's this one woman and there's some truth in that but i sort of like it even more to go maybe it's not just this one woman maybe that idea that Mm. it's like one singular genius is also really flawed it's like all Mm. all like amazing kind of achievements are collaborative and collective like no one works in a silo and so getting away from this like um kind of idolization of of a singular hero also feels important in a way yeah and actually that does heavily relate to stuff to do with the environment as well because i was watching that um do you remember megan markle and harry megan and harry who did (laughs) megan Uh, ooh. Um, they did like an online summit about many things, sustainability and various things. And one of the things they were saying on the one of the there's this guy who has this thing called Man Cave in Australia, which is sort of like trying to get men to be less toxic, I suppose. But just saying how part of the issue is that like we center ourselves in everything. And so with the planet and all of that, it's like, how can I get more? How can I get more of this? How can I make this all about me? And actually he was saying, you know, to be honest, what we need to really uh, understand is that we need to work out how we can serve the planet. And uh, are we ever going to get there? I don't know. I don't feel like we are. Oh, it's such a, such a good and interesting question. Not that are we ever going to get there? That I can't answer, but the, the ego <laughs> bit. <laughs> what? <laughs> um you know, I've been cut. The more deep I get into the climate world, the more I've seen big egos in it, and that's really sad and disheartening to see. That there's also interesting a lot of ego and activism sometimes that I think is deeply problematic. I don't think social media helps that. You know, the kind of new woke social media culture too that's so individualistic in terms of people's profiles and stuff. It made me think when you're saying that. Um, I wrote in my book who cares wins, which looks at environmental solutions, um, amongst many different solutions. I am, I, I wrote quite a bit in the end about like indigenous culture and, and what we might learn from mm. indigenous cultures. I, you know, I wrote about an experience of going to the Amazon and spending time with the community called the Awanawa and also we interviewed, um, two of the members of the Awanawa community for the book. And it came back to mind actually when you were saying that, because I had such a strong experience, I, I had many experiences with them in the Amazon, but one of them was a kind of, sense of dissolution of ego and a sense of being mm-hmm. connect like really deeply connected to the um to the natural world around me i mean mm. i i was had taken i drunk ayahuasca and i was in the middle of the forest like i'll caveat it with that it. that definitely helped yeah. <laughs> in the process <laughs> but yeah. it was such a powerful shift to um i went from being quite self i was dancing because this, this amazing woman putani putani yawanawa who i interviewed for the book she dances a lot and um, mm-hmm. I was dancing with her and others and I was feeling incredibly self-conscious. And at some point that just shifted and I stopped being self-conscious and sort of suddenly felt very, very connected to the to the whole kind of reality around me of, of the, other, the other people in the, in the, in the forest, etc. Um, and it was such a kind of like freeing feeling. 
And I feel like that, it's weird to sort of like try and explain that, but I feel like that sort of shift of allowing us to feel less self-involved and mm. um, self-conscious, egocentric, however you want to call it, and more like gen- genuinely connected to the natural world is a big part of the psychological shift that needs to happen yes. for true sustainability. Do you know, have you ever come across um, Timothy Morton's work, Queer Ecology? No, I know that you've spoken about it, though. I'd love to talk more about it because it's fascinating. So he has a really amazing essay. I think it's available online called Queer Ecology, where he sort of, in quite philosophical terms, just talks about how, like, all of life is queer and, like, there's not Mm. hard kind of binaries and there's not, like like we don't end where nature begins we are one continuum biologically speaking with mm. nature and that everything is ver- is very fluid and that just i don't know that sort of feels like a healthier maybe way to understand our relationship to nature that we are part of nature and connected to nature and connected to other species rather than this kind of separate often considered like um superior species you know mm. yeah we're very arrogant aren't we we're here, we're a certain number of people on this planet. How many people are there? Nearly 8 billion now, I think 7.5 billion. Yeah. 8, 7.5 billion. Yeah. And we think that we, the 7.5 billion, should get every other being on the planet to work for us, you know, for our needs. And I don't know, I have like, this might sound really like depressing, <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll share it. Um I don't know. Sometimes I feel, and this is too reductive, and I'm sure many scientists would laugh at me. But anyway, sometimes I feel like, you know how we're always like looking out at the sky, trying to look for life, and Mm. there's nothing out there in inverted commas. And you go, well, maybe that's because wherever humans go, they just really fuck it up. Like, because we have this ego or this arrogance at the center of it that makes you not invest. Because it all works. Like, all these things around us, like... Uh, nature and uh, uh, organisms like they all work perfectly it just it's just when we get involved the problems start there's a song a friend who's a musician um cosmo sheldrake he does the music in my podcast he was telling me about last week we were having a similar conversation and he was um he told me about a song by moondog i've been meaning to look it up because i haven't actually listened to it yet but it's called enough about human rights and apparently it's like (laughs) Enough about human really? rights. What about snail rights? What about whale <laughs> rights? What about eel rights? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I know there are obviously people advocating, there are people advocating, but it's not, it's, we're not living as one, are we? And that's sort of the problem. And ironically, I think that is undermining our experience as humans. So I don't think it's self-serving, mm. you know. Let me ask you a bit about uh, your sort of current work and things like that. I remember hearing you say a really lovely thing, which is, trying to live sustainably um we are i I remember you asked the question are we trying are we finding a very complicated solution to in some respects a simple problem maybe that like you know the one thing we won't give up is simplifying our lives but maybe that is the only path would that be would that be right i think that was like a very elegant summary of my thinking. I okay. like it. Thanks. I might take that. <laughs> Pleasure. Uh, honestly, all yours. <laughs> I, don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever framed it in that way, but that is definitely a big part of my own thinking, for sure. Um, really? I think I just made it more convoluted. So thanks for synthesizing it. <laughs> I complicated the simple narrative. <laughs> I do think there is a massive tension, and I write about this kind of throughout the book, um, between a, a kind of a part of the environmental movement slash conversation, which is 
how do we keep the standards of life and the type of life and the lifestyles that we are accustomed to and we expect and we want to improve and we want to grow and we want other people to have um mm. and we've kind of normalized as aspirational how do we make that sustainable and available for all um and there are lots of kind of tech utopian people working to try and make that possible um and then there's a kind of different movement that's kind of ha- actually questioning that as an aspirational lifestyle kind of you know developed world comfortable economic growth endless insatiable desires etc cetera, etc cetera, um that we should be mm. questioning that um because it's not possible and it may not even actually be serving people's happiness um mm. and that actually radically kind of simplifying movements like voluntary simplicity are much more important getting back to values you know like what are the values that make us happy whether it's mental health um doing a job you love spending time with friends and family you know positive relationships blah 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 that are not materialistic and therefore not um costing the planet and i mm. think that tension there's a there's a very good book actually on that tension called the wizard and the prophet that i reference and i sort of am looking at both sides of that tension so interviewing the elon musks and the kind of capitalist yeah. machines that's trying to greenify everything and then also indig- indigenous groups and uh, people like my friend mark boyle who lives completely off grid and like the kind of it's a very different way of thinking about environmentalism um yes and i try not to be prescriptive so i try and look at all sides because i think that probably we need a bit of everything but i i think probably in my heart i lean more towards the simplification narrative because i think that actually that's probably going to make us happier in an ironic way. Mm. And I don't mean poverty, you know, I'm not trying to like glamorize poverty. I think that obviously we need to like meet um, basic needs, but I think the emphasis on consumption and material ways of kind of, um, sorry, my cat just jumped in. Um, (gasps) Who's that? This is Luna. Hi, Luna. I've just been away for two weeks, so we're very happy to be reunited. That's cute. My dog um, was in here a minute ago, but he got turfed out because he was barking. Um, <laughs> go on. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, I just think that the kind of the so much like the excess kind of consumption materialism is not actually making people happier. And so mm. I think a more fundamental questioning around what is the point of being alive? Like, what do we want to do with our time on this planet? And what are the priorities and the values that are important is maybe the more important piece of the puzzle because i think fundamentally it's a psychological crisis or a spiritual crisis and that the climate crisis is sort of isn't is a symptom of that and if we don't deal with the 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 kind of root cause if we just manage to like electrify everything and have a green version of consumerism i'm not sure that that will actually bring us some promised utopia Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
it's sort of overwhelming. I mean, it is overwhelming. I find it overwhelming. Mm. Um, the modern society is so complicated. I was just in um, Chile and one of the things I did while I was there, I was there for um, this UN conference in Santiago I'd been asked to go to. But whilst I was there, I travelled up to the north of Chile to the Atacama Desert to meet this indigenous woman, Sonia Ramos, who I'd, I'd written about in my book um, and researched a bit when I was writing the book, who's been protesting lithium mining in that region because it's one of the biggest mm. um, kind of sources of lithium in the world. And and I was really interested in trying to understand why she was protesting. She's walked across Chile as part of her protest. And she's, I don't know, around 70 years old. Wow. Because lithium is booming in large part because of the green agenda. So the kind of push for green technology and the push for renewables, the push for electrification, electric cars, etc., is mm. driving huge demand for lithium because lithium is used for a lot of the batteries. Um, and I've been a big part of trying to like push for net zero and push for... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not taking responsibility for it. I'm saying, but that's been a big focus of my work has been like. <laughs> I have got the climate crisis resting on my shoulders um, while um, juggling being in the split. Hello. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. No, I guess what I'm trying to say is I've been like personally advocating the need to get yes. fossil fuels ASAP and commit to net zero, etc. And I still stand by that because I think the information around you know the fossil fuel situation is just absolutely like critical but i sort of wanted to understand well at what cost right and what is the kind of impact of the of the big drive now for lithium on the ground and that i think that experience i mean it's, it was very complicated as these things always are and i'm sort of still digesting it but did mm. for me like reiterate this conversation we're having that like if we just swap out all of our fossil fuel cars for electric cars and continue as we're doing of like buying new every 10 minutes and churning mm. out whether it's phones or cars or clothes or whatever that that don't last more than a few years whatever it is and then kind of get mm. wasted that we're just going to end up in the same problem in a different way um mm -hmm. and there was also in chile it's the second biggest importer of used clothes in the world the first being ghana and they get uh right now nearly forty thousand tons of used clothes from around the world get shipped into chile every year and a huge proportion of that just end up in these like absolute mountains of clothes in the desert. Mm -hmm. um, some of which is burned. If you Google it, you'll, you'll find the imagery and it's absolutely insane. It's like, at what point did fashion become a waste product? Yeah. Like did clothes become waste? It's like, it's so nuts. I mean, statistically they say that um, around three quarters of the clothes bought every year and there's 80 to hundred billion garments being bought every year, about three quarters end up in landfill. So it's three quarters of of what's produced ends up in landfill. Yeah, and it's billions of garments every year. I just sent you a link to the to the BBC I thing. I love Lily. I've never done a podcast like this where we look at links, and I always <laughs> sorry, like, it's really no, it's my I like geeky it. side I'm... coming out, but it's not very good for your listeners. I think. <laughs> well, well, what we'll do, listeners, is these will all be in the show notes, so okay. you can you can look along with us. Oh my god! So I'm looking at huge mountains of clothes. And it's now that there's a zoom drone zoom a drone shot and it's getting bigger and bigger. And it's funny how this stuff, even though it's on BBC News website, the link you sent me, like this stuff is opaque. People don't know. And And apparently um, this has been going on for decades and that it only was in the BBC about a month ago. So it's Really it's taken a long time, I think, for this, yeah, to start to even begin to kind of scratch at the surfaces of us on 
having some awareness of. Slightly changes the subject, but it's it's very related, which means it means it's not changing the subject. I have been a long time admirer of you because I saw oh. what you started doing, a, a, you know, a long time ago, like during modelling and then sort of coming out of modelling and starting to do things to do with sustainability and things. And I just, I, I love people who are a bit polymathy. I love people who are trying to create some change, people who have huge positions of privilege and success and think how am I going to do some good with it you know I just think it's wonderful so massive admiration for you and I do think it's interesting how those people uh often get attacked quite a lot for you know oh well so you know where how often do you buy clothes you know and and it's what is that about because that's really a hiding to nothing if someone's trying to talk about sustainability I know we're trying to look for hypocrisy I suppose but do do you get a lot of that I think I definitely have had a lot of that in the past I think mm. now I'm less aware of it because I don't I sort of I guess I bubble myself a bit more like if I write an article mm. I just won't read the comments underneath because I sort of anticipate there'll be a lot of that in it and so I sort of shield myself from it and I considered not publishing my book because of these fears like I thought mm-hmm. like oh, I know I'm a hypocrite and and I know people are just going to like call me a hypocrite. And so am I just like putting myself in the firing line? And I sort of overcame that by recognising that actually the issues are more important than me being self-involved and egocentric about worrying about, you know, it felt quite like a self-involved narrative to be like, oh, I'm going to get attacked, mm. therefore I shouldn't speak. Um, and so instead I just tried to name it from the beginning and acknowledge like I am a hypocrite. But FYI, it's almost impossible to exist in our system today and not be a hypocrite and that's part of the problem and we need to make it easier for people to participate in ways that are not destructive Mm. and I think the whole hypocrisy thing too has also been used and I hope it's dying down because I think it's been used a lot by the media to shut people up it's like a very convenient way to stop environmental conversations happening because you can always say yeah but how did you get here did you get in a car did you do this did Mm. you you know and it's like unless you are like my friend mark boyle who literally has no electricity grows his own vegetables lived off grid as soon as you participate in the system there is a version of hypocrisy however small or large that's going to be enacted and so it feels like a very convenient way to shut people up you know Um, and i don't think that's helpful at all because you know that like people will be like well i bet he's got a phone you know, and it's like, well, hang on a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, and also the irony that what that person who's criticising you wants, I imagine, is using some electricity to be on the Daily Mail website or wherever they were. And also the irony is that what they want from you in order to follow through on their comment is for you to go back to just using as much electricity and, all you know, all the stuff as as possible which is like well then no one's solving the problem so hang on and also i think it's just getting into the dynamics of like of like finger pointing guilt like it's like it's like shifting blame between individuals rather than Mm -hmm. us i think being a bit more compassionate to each other and going you know what none of us are perfect or very few of us and it's very hard to get this right we need systemic change and how do we work together to get systemic change um And I think that's the conversation that needs to be had that's much more collective and looking at kind of political policies, corporate policies, rather than putting the onus on individuals so much. Um, Mm. There's some interesting studies that came out that suggest that um, the whole concept of a carbon footprint was born from the marketing agencies of fossil fuel companies, that it was a kind of like ingenious move for them to put all the onus on individuals and 
to kind of set up this idea of a carbon footprint that we have to each take responsibility for sort of like gets them off the hook in a way. And I think that's fairly well documented now, which is kind of mind blowing that that's where that came from. And that's not to say that I do think individuals really, really matter. Like I think that each of us has um, a kind of our our piece of the the puzzle to play and, and power and responsibility um, but there needs to be kind of forgiveness built into that too, because it's really fucking hard, you know, to get it right. Yes, absolutely. And also the thing about the carbon footprint is footprint is quite a, a small image in your head. You know what I mean? It sounds like something that you could make a few tweaks to and then have solved. But it also just it implies that like the problem is a consequence of all of our individual footprints, literally footprints mm-hmm. put together, as yeah. opposed to actually a small number of companies making decisions for decades to suppress scientific data, to lobby politicians, to Mm. create an environment that has made it really, really, really difficult to deal with the climate crisis. Who for you is doing exciting stuff in this space who seems to be making some good ground on trying to get to the bottom of some of the challenges we face? I think the youth movement has been extraordinary yeah i started writing my book 2016 published it 2008 uh, 20 sorry and there was a real turning point 2018 um that i was sort of trying to document as i was writing and editing the book where the ipcc issued their kind of massive landmark report um that came out in 2018 that said you know we have until 2030 to change all of our systems absolutely Mm -hmm. like transformational change otherwise like we're essentially like fucked (laughs) the species um and they couldn't have been more explicit and it was i think a massive wake up and simultaneously sort of as a consequence maybe to that you had greta thunberg studying the the climate strikes i mean there'd be many other youth activists before that but that's when it really sort of Mm. kicked off a momentum um you also had extinction rebellion forming and and staging protests and i think it was really kind of clear to see the shift in public consciousness um, that has emerged mm. since then around these issues. These issues were not being talked about, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. The science was still there, you know. Like, when I started looking at this, I was like, why are we not freaking out about this? <laughs> you know, the scientists yeah. are freaking out, but everyone else seems to be um, oblivious. Not everyone, but, you know, a lot. <laughs> do, you, do you follow Matthew Todd on Instagram? I don't, know. Should he, I? He was the editor of Attitude magazine. He's always sharing things going, why is this story page three? about a massive new announcement from scientists yet the front cover is you know whatever it is um of the newspapers um yeah he's a good follow if you know if you want to wake up call every every morning with your cup of tea i'm always like oh god we're doomed um which then makes (laughs) you feel a bit (laughs) feel a little bit helpless indigenous leaders also is the other group i look a lot to and i've spent time trying to like yeah learn from Mm. and speak to not to generalize them they're obviously very diverse but I try. I guess I'm very interested in like alternative ways of seeing the world to the ones that our society gives us. That respond to the nature around them because they're surrounded by the nature rather than so detached like we are in concrete. And also have managed to survive for thousands of years, sometimes tens of thousands of years, you know, sustainably. Yeah, there's a lot to be learned. Ah, that was lovely. What a great chat. Let us know what you thought of that. At Homo Sapiens on Instagram. Hello at homosapienspodcast.com. 
Next week, I'm going to be chatting to Mark Thompson. He is the AIDS activist and founder of the Black History Archive called Black Gay and Back in the Day. I came across it because of its Instagram account. Um, It's more than that. So that's going to be next week. Very excited about that. Get in touch. You know how to do it. Uh, Send me your questions. Send me your life. Tell me your stories and your agony uncles and they'll be anonymous hello at homosapienspodcast.com thank you for listening it's been wonderful spending an hour in your company perhaps a touch more until next week ta for now I'm going to go and boot those kids off the village green now hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Powered by Spirit Studios.